We are 427 days into the war between Russia and Ukraine. This week, Ukraine went on the offensive, took aim at Russian ships in the Black Sea. With details on all the latest developments in the war, we are joined this morning once again by Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for being with us again. Good. Good morning, Sue and Andy. Are we seeing Ukraine moving towards what we've been hearing about for a long time now, a, a so-called spring offensive? Yes, I believe that's the case. Uh, it's not, of course, confirmed, nor will it be confirmed, but uh, there is speculation that that, in fact, has happened. Ukrainians have hinted that they're doing that. Uh, there is also, uh, in the last uh, day, uh, a serious, significant uh, artillery bombardment taking place uh, by both Russians and Ukrainians in the south and Kershaw there. Um, and the thing about modern uh, warfare, because of the sensitivity of concentrating forces and being seen, uh, most offensive operations these days, and we've seen this on the Russian side, are actually smaller units that try to kind of sneak up. And it's more like, rather than large waves of troops that we are sort of normally historically seen in offensive operations, the modern offensive operations are actually a bit here, a bit there, but continuous continuous. And I believe that we are now seeing the beginning of the Ukrainian spring offensive. Do the Ukrainian people, the military and the people fighting alongside the soldiers have the gear and the weapons that they need for an offensive such as this? Well, the first rule of thumb is you never have enough. So the question is, do they have uh, sufficient gear to conduct the operations? The answer is yes. Uh, they would not be launching these operations uh, if they didn't have sufficient gear to do something. Now, um, uh, the Western tanks, uh, the artillery systems, uh, and, and the, um, the ammunition and so forth uh, has arrived. Uh, there's, it's continuous, though. There will be more coming. But they've got enough now, it would appear, to put together some number of units. We don't know how many, but sufficient to create some offensive action. And this will take over time. It's not going to be in a week or a, perhaps even a month. This will drag on for a, a, perhaps the entire season of the spring into the summer as they try. They're going to try to find a weak spot in the Russian line and then try to penetrate it uh, and then establish a kind of a, a, what we call operational level success. They, will, they have the potential to do that. Now, they do not, and nor will they have this year, the potential to strategically defeat the Russians and push them all the way back to the 1991 borders, including Crimea. That is, that no one assesses that that is plausible. Andrew, you know, in terms of, you're talking about equipment and, and munitions, et cetera, being rolled out. There's been a lot of loss of life on both sides. Will drones play a bigger role in the war, do you think? Is that a possibility in order to maybe save the, the human casualty numbers? Well, I mean, drones are actually what, what, what's helping both armies kill more people. Uh, really? Because what happens is that drones are, are, well, drones do two things. Drones are also for reconnaissance, so they see the other side. Mm. They help targeting. So with drones, both sides are able to target the other side more efficiently. On the other hand, also, there are killer drones, the drones that go off and basically act like small missiles, and they also kill a lot of people. So the impact of drones on the, on the battlefield is that they, they, uh, they make combat operations more effective and they kill more people. Um, there's, uh, there's very few systems actually out there that actually save lives. Most systems increase the ability of one side to kill the other side, which is why we are in a very heavy uh, war of attrition, and both sides are suffering greatly. And on that last point, let me just t tell you that 
in that sense, the Ukrainians are struggling with the fact that they have a finite amount of people that they can commit to combat. Uh, the Russians have a larger amount of people. For the Russians, the issue, though, is can how, how much can they mobilize? They mobilized a little bit, but they could do more. But there's a political blowback, potentially, for Putin if he does that. That's the tricky balance here. So you've got fewer Ukrainians against more Russians, which should favor the Russians. But, but there's political calculus in Russia, which is not allowing them to mobilize completely. That's why it's a bit of a stalemate right now. Andrew, I found it uh, quite interesting that on Monday, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov chaired the U.N. Security Council meeting. Why is Russia still being given such an active role in the U.N.? Well, because the United Nations uh, uh, has a charter, and uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Russians are a permanent member of the Security Council, and there is no legal mechanism, uh, procedure, by which the Russians can be prevented from taking their role as chairman on a rotational basis of the National Security Council. They're not expelled from the Council. They're not expelled from the United Nations. Wouldn't that be something you might want to look at changing the rules a little bit? I, uh, well, there are vetoes. Uh, certainly, the, uh, even if you overrode the, the Russian veto somehow, that's never been done before, but if it did happen, uh, the Chinese, I'm sure, uh, would put a counter veto. The, the Chinese are also part of the group of five that have the veto power, and I'm sure they would stop any of those procedures. 427 days into this conflict, do we have a picture of how this war is being viewed in the borders of Russia from, from the Russian people? Well, the Russian people predominantly are, um, are getting uh, state media. Now there is always Internet. I mean, some of it's being controlled and blocked and so on. But in the modern age, information flows do occur. But what we can see overall is that the, uh, the, the, the average Russian, the majority of Russians, do support the war. They see this as a war against the West, that it's not the Ukrainian people, but they regard the government of Ukraine as being a puppet of the West and that threatens Russia's interest. That's how the majority of Russians view it. There are liberal Democrat types uh, who, who follow more of the Western narrative, but they are outliers. And two of them are famously in prison, Navalny and Murza, who was just sentenced to 25 years imprisonment for treason. But, so they are, not, they are not really an effective force, politically speaking. Uh, what, uh, what is a, 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 uh, an important political force is the Russian ultranationalists. And that's Putin's real problem, because they are pushing, putting pressure on Putin openly to do more in Ukraine, to do a regime change. They're, they're saying Putin is not driving enough, is not, work, is not fighting hard enough against Ukrainians. So that's the challenge. And that's basically the political landscape inside of Russia. So, Andrew, on that note, is there any sense that, you know, Putin might be ousted? No. Uh, right now, I mean, you, you know, think about dictators. You never, or autocrats, not dic- autocrats. You never know. They're there until they're not there, um, and certain things can happen under the scene, uh, behind the scenes. But as of all, all assessments right now suggest that he is firmly in control. He is managing the ultranationalists, but he still controls all the levers. And at the end of the day, no one can move against him without moving against themselves. There's always a counter move, but he remains firmly in control. So no one should really speculate too much about being a regime change. And if you do get a regime change, almost everyone agrees that it would be a stronger anti-Western leader than Putin himself. So if one is looking at regime change and saying, oh, well, that'll change the end of the war. No. In fact, if that happens, it could be worse. Mm. 
Interesting wow. times. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, take your time for an update this morning, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Glad to be with you again. It's Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and an expert in Eastern European affairs.